Hello everyone, hope you all been well. Today on Ghost Travelers Podcast, we'll be talking with Peter Muse. We'll be talking to Peter about how he got into the paranormal field, and also talk about his new book called Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts. So please join us on this journey with Peter. Peter, welcome to Ghost Travelers Podcast. How are you today? Good, thanks for having me here, PJ. I'm excited to be on to talk about some spooky, weird stuff with you. Yeah, same here. So, Peter, if you could, can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the paranormal field? Sure. Um, my name is Peter Muse. I live in Massachusetts. Um, I'm the author of two books that are out right now. Uh, the newest is Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts. And then my older book from a few years back is Legends and Lore, Legends and Lore of the North Shore. So we're both kind of local New England-themed books. Um, I've lived here in New England my whole life, and... Um, you know, I guess when I was a kid, I was growing up in the 1970s, and sort of the early 1970s was a time when a lot of um, things that we now consider paranormal were sort of coming to the mainstream. So there'd be sh- like the show In Search of, I don't know if you remember the show In Search of, like that was a big thing when I was a kid. So each week they would talk about one, you know, weird thing like crystal skulls, UFOs, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, whatever, every week they would do one of those. And... Just, you know, like the $6 million man fought Bigfoot. There were shows about UFOs, Atlantis, all this stuff was kind of in the air at the time. So I sort of became, you know, I absorbed some of that. My older brother was into some of that as well, particularly Bigfoot and UFOs. And so I absorbed that from him as well. Um, I guess I would say, you know, that's one sort of one stream in my mind. And the other one was that I really was interested in like folklore, mythology, legends things like that so greek mythology norse mythology you know all those things and so at some point i went to college i studied anthropology and like when you study anthropology it's this way of looking at things so you could look at folklore you could look at mythology you could look at paranormal stories all kind of in the same lens right look at all those different things yeah in the same way. and so i kind of got that perspective and then when i left college you know i'm not a professional anthropologist but i have that mindset still and i just realized i didn't really know so much about the place i've lived my whole life like i studied norse mythology greek mythology but i didn't really know new england so i started to read specifically about new england and paranormal stories from new england and really old legends from new england as well from you know 400 500 years ago so um and so that's that's where i am today like i kind of had all this stuff in my brain and needed to do something with it so i started a blog in 2008 so that's a new that's still up, so I still update that frequently. And then I have I've written a couple of books. I've written short articles and chapters for other people's books as well. So that's where that's me. Very nice, and that's a lot to take in. So, when you were younger, have you ever had a paranormal experience? Or when you got older, have you ever had a uh, paranormal experience? Or have you done any kind of investigating? It's a good question. When I was a I guess when I was a small kid, I don't remember how old I was, somewhere between like five and eight, so small. Um, my brother and I were out in the backyard playing and we were playing with our backyard neighbor and we saw this light in the sky. And it probably must have been like the summer or something because we were out playing after dark. And then we saw this light in the sky and it kind of came down behind a hill near us. And I remember we were all just terrified. Like we thought we had just seen a UFO come down in our neighborhood. And I don't, I really don't know what it was like in retrospect, like maybe it was a helicopter. Maybe it was a, I don't know, 
flair. It could have been different things, right? But I remember that feeling we had of like kind of amazement and also a little bit of and, and terror. Like we were scared. Like we ran into my house, my parents' house. We just would not go back outside. We refused to go back outside. And our neighbor wouldn't go back to his house until his parents came back from church. So we were kind of like, ah. So I remember that experience really vividly, you know. And whether it was really a UFO or not, I mean, I guess it was a UFO because it was unidentified, right? But whether yeah. it was a extraterrestrial craft or whatever. Probably not, but I just remember thinking it was UFO and that amazement we felt. So, um, you know, as an adult, um, sometimes my husband and I will go out and investigate different areas. And we're not really ghost hunters. Like, I don't go out with, uh, you know, boxes and things like that or, uh, you know, devices to try to get the, the quiet recordings that people do. I more just go to see the space take some pictures and write about the history of it. Um, and I certainly, I don't go at night like I'm too much of a coward, so I usually go to these places in the day usually. So, but we've been to some good, good spooky places. Um, you know, I've talked on some of these other podcasts I've done about the Ramtail Mill Complex, which is down in Foster, Rhode Island, which is kind of a rural part of Rhode Island, west of Providence. And it's just... Um, it was, it was a mill, like an industrial mill that was built in the 1700s, so really old, and was built by the side of this river. There's a good legend that, around it about this man named Peleg Walker. So Peleg Walker was the manager of the mill. So he was like, he would oversee the other workers, and every morning he would ring this bell to summon the workers to come to the mill and start their day, because there was a village that had grown up around this mill. So one day Peleg Walker says to the owner of the mill, you know, I've been a great worker for you. I'm really diligent. I'm hardworking. I would like to marry your daughter. And the owner of the mill just like laughed, like, no way. Like I'm a rich mill owner. You are my employee. No way is my daughter marrying one of my employees. It's just not going to happen. So Peleg Walker is really distraught. He's really upset. And he rushes out of the mill into the woods. So next morning, people hear the bell ringing, ding, 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 ding. So they get up in the village. They go into the mill to go to work and they're horrified to see that Peleg Walker is hanging from a rope from the bell because he was so upset about, you know, being turned down for this marriage that he has killed himself. He's hung himself from the rope and the bell is ringing because his corpse is like making it sway. All the workers are really freaked out, as you can imagine. The yeah. owner is like, you know, just pay no attention. He cuts down the corpse, drags it off and says, everybody just go back to work. So people go about their day. Next morning, the bell rings, everyone gets up, they go into the mill, and they can see that the rope is swinging on its own, and the bell is just ringing as if an invisible hand is pulling the rope. And so people, again, like, you know, they're freaked out. The mill owner says, oh, you know, don't pay any attention to this. He cuts down the rope entirely, so there's no rope. He says, you know, then tomorrow just come when, when you hear the roosters crow, whatever. So people go about their day. The next morning, again, the bell rings. People are a little confused. They go to the mill. They go inside, and they can see the bell is moving. There's no rope at all, so it can't be the wind. It's a heavy bell. It's just swinging on its own, ringing, 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 ringing. And so at this point, like, as if people didn't already guess, like, they realize that this mill is haunted, that Peleg Walker's ghost still is in this mill. And so people quit. Like, they, it's the 1700s. People are not into ghosts at all. It's a much more superstitious era. So people just quit, and slowly no one will work at this mill. And at nighttime, people see, claim to see have seen like Peleg Walker's ghost walking around in the mill building carrying a lantern. Oh, wow. He's doing his nightly rounds. So they see him, this lantern moving through the mill. So 
people abandon the village, the mill shuts down. And if you go there today, like, so it's now what, probably 250 years later, you can see the foundations of these buildings. Um, and some of them are quite big. There are, there's a road there, there are stone walls where they, they used to divide up the different lots and things like that. So you can see the ruins of this village and you can see the ruins of this mill. And, um, you know, when we went there, it was probably a late March day and we were, we saw two other people there we were there for a couple hours. So we only saw two other people in this whole time. And it's just, a, it was an unnerving place. Like something about it was spooky and a little weird to us, particularly to me. Um, and I remember taking photos with my iPhone. I was just taking pictures of like the foundations and some stuff like that. And some of the photos didn't come out. They just came out pure white, which is really strange. Cause like that, how does that happen on an iPhone that a picture does not develop? Right? Yeah. It's not like we're using film or something like that. And so I was, I found it a little, I was freaked out. Like the people who worked at the mill, like I was freaked out by that. And I'd, again, I don't know, was it something supernatural? Was it just a glitch in my phone? I don't know, but in that setting at that time, I was like, ooh, this feels like it's something supernatural. In retrospect, maybe it could have been something else, but, you know, I often say that my belief in the supernatural is kind of a situational thing. Like, if I am in the place at the moment and weird things are happening, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is definitely supernatural. And then maybe later, if I'm in a well-lit, you know, apartment or house, I'm like, eh, maybe it wasn't supernatural, you know? Yeah. But you know how that is, so... So when you write your stories, do you often go visit these locations uh, before you write them down, like uh, for your own personal experience and when you interview uh, the witnesses of the locations to document their experience in the books? Inter yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes we go to these places, but often I don't. Um, a lot of the things I read about are much are older, so I will go back to like sources from the 1600s to 1700s. And so I'm... Uh, writing about the legend itself, right? Writing about what people say about it. And sometimes we go, we don't usually interview people. Occasionally people will write to me and tell me about their experiences, in which case I will like put that in the blog or put that in a book if someone writes to me about their experiences with something. But um, so it's a mix of like research and then excursions. And I update the blog every week. So I don't unfortunately have the time to travel like every week, but we try to go when we can to see something interesting. And I will say like, I love old cemeteries. That's one of my favorite places to go. I just will, like if there's an old cemetery, I'm like, yeah, let's go see that old cemetery. That's the place to be. Yeah, most definitely because with the old, the old cemeteries, I think it's like very interesting since I'm a paranormal investigator. It's really cool to go, uh, before you go to that location and visit the local cemeteries to learn about that person you're trying to communicate. And it's really cool to read the, the information on their tombstones. Yeah, right. They I mean, can just learn the history of the people and the place before you go in, right? So you kind of have a base understanding of what what happened there, who the people are is interesting. Whether you're, you whether you're like a paranormal investigator or just interested in like the legends associated with someplace like that, you know? Um, yeah. We did go to a really spooky cemetery um, in Truro, Massachusetts. So I don't. Truro is way out on Cape Cod. It's like the second to last town in Cape Cape Cod. So okay. Way out there. Um, it's In the summer, it's got a lot of tourists, but the rest of the year, it's not so busy. And there's a cemetery there called the Pine Grove Cemetery. And um, in the late 1960s, early late 1960s, late 1960s, um, this man named Tony Costa, who was a, unfortunately a serial killer, 
uh, murdered several women and buried them in the woods behind this cemetery. And he was arrested and died in prison. So if you go into the cemetery, you kind of drive down this road through the woods, it's a dirt road, then you come to the cemetery and some of it's very beautiful, just like beautiful old stones and even some beautiful new stones. Sort of towards the back of the cemetery is this crypt, which is half above ground, half under a hill. And it's always open, the door, the door doesn't lock. And according to legend, like they say, this is where Tony Costa dismembered his victims. I don't know if that's really true. That's where he dismembered them, but that's sort of the legend attached to this crypt. Um, maybe it was just a crypt they used, that the cemetery workers used to store, like store bodies temporarily, because sometimes crypts have like a holding crypt. Yeah. But um, I still did not go inside the crypt. Like I was like, no, don't go inside the crypt. Like I took a camera and I took some pictures, but I was not going into that crypt. Um, but then from from the back of the cemetery, there's a road that goes into the woods. And that is where he, the police found the bodies. He had buried several of them in the same place. He would lure women there and say, oh, well, do you want to come and see my marijuana patch, is what he would say. It was the late 60s. People were like, oh, sure, marijuana is so novel, so you know, daring. So they would go with him, and then he would basically tie them up and kill them. And so we were walking down this road in the woods, the dirt road, and just completely silent, like, we're like miles away from the road where, where the car was, just completely silent and just spooky. Like no birds, no insects, like nothing. And it was creepy, you know? And then we came to this crossroad in the woods where the roads met. And I was like, you know, if I was some sort of like super goth person, like this is where I'd come to do my spooky, you know, Halloween ritual or whatever. We left, like, my husband was like, yeah, this is a creepy place, we should leave. Like, this is an unsettling, creepy place, let's get out. So we left, but reading later that uh, that crossroad actually was where Tony Costa had buried his victims. Like, they had been buried just, you know, a few feet from there. So that was disturbing. Like, um, I don't know, I think it's good when we go to visit these places and we, you, me, whoever, like, you should bring a friend, at least one person, when you go to these places, just because often they're isolated, I think, um, out in the middle of the woods or out in wherever. So yeah. I feel like even if you just want to even make sure that you don't run into like other trouble, not maybe not ghosts, maybe not monsters, but maybe just like maybe somebody else is taken up to, you know, building a meth lab or whatever out in those woods. So I think it's helpful to always have a friend with us when we go to those places, you know. Yeah, most definitely. So you just written a book. And just released it this past September. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what made you that you wanted to uh, write that book? Sure. Yeah. So the book I wrote was was Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts, and so it's a collection of historical accounts of witches and warlocks of Massachusetts, like witchcraft trials, basically. Um, and it's legends about witches from the. 1700s and 1800s and then there are also some paranormal encounters as well from like the 20th century and early 21st century of people who have you know investigated places where the ghosts of witches or ghosts of the witches witch hunt victims um supposedly haunt so it's like 70 different stories and then and then several sections just about the salem witch trials and i really um you know, in Massachusetts, there's just this long history of witchcraft and witchcraft stories and witchcraft trials. 
And as someone who sort of investigates legends, I'd kept looking for like one book that had all the witchcraft stories in one place. And that book didn't exist. So I was like, okay, I found all these legends. I'm putting them in one book because this is the book that I want myself. So it was basically like a book that I wanted to read is what I ended up writing. Um, and even now, like when I will go back and refer to my book, like, oh, I totally forgot I put this in this book, but it has everything like in there so I can read it. Um, and just, you know, for people who are listening or watching, I want to say like when I talk about witches, I'm not talking about like modern witches, like um, Wiccans or people who, you know, honor the earth or work with crystals or herbs or things like that. That's sort of a different type of witch. Um, that's like, that's mo that's a modern witchcraft. That's a spiritual path or it's not a negative thing. Um, but in the past, like particularly in the 1600s or early 1700s, um, you know, people in Massachusetts had a different definition of witch, which they basically thought a witch was someone who would hurt you using magical means, right? Using magical forces to harm their neighbors or other people in their community. So that's the definition that I'm looking at more in this book is like that older definition of witch. Cause that's what a lot of the legends are about, like these kind of malevolent witch figures who some of them are purely legendary. Some of them are based on people who lived, who were, you know, falsely accused by their neighbors of being witches, I think. Very interesting. If you could, can you tell us like one of the, your, I guess some of your favorite stories that you've written in the book, or it could be some of the witch trials and stuff like that, or the paranormal stories from the book? Sure. That's a, that's a tough one. Cause I like them all. Um, I mean, here's an interesting one. It's, um, a woman who lived in Western Massachusetts named Mary Webster. And this was, I want to say, I want, so like maybe the 1670s or 1680s. I'm going to get the date wrong. So pretend I don't know the date, but it was before the Salem Witch Trials. It's like somewhere between the 1670s and 1680s. Mary Webster lived out in uh, Hadley, Massachusetts, which is far out in the Western part of the state. And she had been accused of being a witch by people in her community. And since witchcraft was a capital crime punishable by death, people in Hadley sent her to the capital, which was Boston, to be um, put on trial. And the judges in Boston said, you know, she's not a witch, she's innocent, um, we're sending her back to Hadley. So they sent her back to Hadley, to back to her home, and her neighbors were really unhappy about this. But they couldn't really do anything because she had already been found innocent of witchcraft. So one of her neighbors, a wealthy man named Philip Smith, um, he tried to like help her by giving her money and things like this, but she refused his help because he had been one of the people who had initially accused her of witchcraft. And so shortly after she refused his help, Philip Smith became sick. And at first he was like, you know, I'm sick, but it's okay. Like this is God's plan for me. They were Puritans, so they were very devout. You know, frame things in that way. He's like, this is part of God's plan for me. It's totally fine. Then his symptoms got worse and worse and worse till finally he was in incredible pain. And he started to scream out that Mary Webster has cursed me. I can see her spirit hovering around me and it's tormenting me. And soon after this, people in his house start to experience strange phenomena. Like they would smell like a strong animal scent would fill the house, like a musky smell. And they thought they could feel like an invisible animal, you know, brushing against their legs while Philip Smith was lying in bed. You know, medicine they made for him would disappear from the house, all of these things. And so they were really convinced that Mary Webster was a witch who was causing this had to happen to Philip Smith. And so an angry mob actually formed 
and went to Mary Webster's house and they dragged her out of her house and they hanged her from a tree. No trial, nothing. They just hanged her from a tree. And for some reason, they cut her down. It's not clear why they cut her down. Maybe they thought she was dead. Maybe someone talked some sense to them. But they cut her down from the tree and they just buried her body in the snow. And amazingly, she lived. Like, she survived that wow. ordeal and lived. And Philip Smith, like, died, you know, a couple weeks later. But Mary Webster lived on for, like, another 10 or 15 years after that. And, the inter and so it's an interesting story because it's, like, this mob of vigilantes taking things into their own hands and basically, you know, hanging an innocent woman. And the writer Margaret Atwood um, was who wrote like the who wrote the handmaid's tale was doing research and she realized that mary webster was one of her ancestors and so she wanted to write a book about mary webster because she was really fascinated by the story but she ended up not writing a book set in puritan massachusetts but instead wrote the handmaid's tale so mary webster was the inspiration for the handmaid's tale which became a really popular book and now a tv show so that was really interesting to me. I hadn't really known that until I was researching this book, that that was the inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale. And you can see it, even The Handmaid's Tale has almost like a puritanical society, you know, in, but slightly in the future. And again, women are very controlled and there's a lot of hangings and things like that. And so it was, that was interesting for me. So I, was, it was, I liked learning that story myself. Yeah, most definitely. And that's a new story for me. I never heard that uh tale before even when i went up to visit uh salem massachusetts a couple years ago and i never heard about that um since we have short amount of time together um i just read your blog about your uh christmas uh story about the witch trials and stuff like that can you tell us a little bit about it if no one hasn't read about it yet Sure. So, um, like Christmas now, the way we celebrate Christmas is, you know, kind of a family holiday, right? It's very focused on like get together with your family. And a lot of it is focused on kids, like kids opening presents under a tree and Santa Claus. And it's very like, it's a domestic holiday. And so sure there are parties and things, but it's more of a domestic, um, peace and love kind of holiday, right? It's a, it's a season yeah. of love people talk about. It didn't always used to be that way, and people in the past had very different feelings about Christmas. So here's the story that you're talking about, PJ. That in um, 1662, which is a long time ago, let's face it, um, a woman named Rebecca Greensmith in Hartford, Connecticut, was accused of being a witch. So her neighbors, whatever, had been experiencing various misfortunes, illnesses, crops dying, animals getting sick, the usual things. They were looking for somebody to blame. They blamed Rebecca Greensmith, who was, you know, not a popular person, I guess, in that community. So she was put on trial. And, you know, while she was on during the trial, she actually confessed that she said, Oh, yeah, I'm a witch, which people would often do, because they were tortured um, during these trials and things like that. So, you know, she confessed, she said that she had met the devil um, in the woods, but she had not yet signed a contract with him. So she hadn't yet put her name in the devil's book. But that was going to happen, she said, on Christmas Day. That was the big day she was going to sign her name over to the devil and become a witch was Christmas Day. And all the, the judges and the, the Puritan ministers who were presiding over the trial were like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense to us. That makes total sense to us because Christmas is such an unholy, dangerous holiday. And this is because if you look back in the past, like in the 1600s and earlier, 
Christmas was a holiday where there was like heavy drinking, heavy, heavy partying, and particularly like people lower in the social hierarchy would drink heavily, and then they would go door to door to their wealthy neighbors' houses and beg for things, right? So they beg for food, they beg for money, they beg for alcohol, they beg for whatever there was. And part of this is because like, if you think about an agricultural cycle, um, like the late fall, early winter, it was the time when all the crops have been harvested. So all the crops have been harvested, so there's plenty of food. This is the time when animals are slaughtered, so you, farmers would think, which animals aren't gonna make it through the winter, we have to kill them. So there's fresh meat available. This is also the time when like, the beer has become ready to drink. So there's all this surplus stuff, right? All this, and often it's in the hands of the wealthier people. And so other people are like, yeah, we want some of that. And so there's this kind of ritualized activity where people get together and they go out at night and they go to their neighbor's houses and they beg for food, they beg for alcohol, they beg for, you know, whatever, which basically is Christmas caroling. Like Christmas caroling, now you think like, you know, people, well-dressed people singing sweetly outside your house on, you know, on a beautiful snowy night. But in the past, like you read the lyrics of these Christmas carols and they are more like, you know, give us a figgy pudding, bring it to us right now. Like those are the lyrics, like people wanted stuff. They come into your house and they want your cake, they want your bread, they want your beer, they want whatever you have. And the wealthier people felt obligated to give it to them. Um, so it's kind of Christmas in the past, that's how it was celebrated. It was like this kind of disruptive holiday picture, like a mix between Halloween and New Year's Eve. Like put those together and that's what Christmas used to be like. Like it was more like heavy drinking and people out in the streets begging for things. So it was a very different holiday than we have now, which is why the Puritans like, oh, clearly this is why Rebecca Greensmith was going to sign her name in the Devil's Book on Christmas, because Christmas is, you know, it's just an unholy holiday. It's all these drunk people out in the streets begging for things. Like, of course, this is the Devil. We're very much about like order and hard work and sobriety. Like they were not a, a bunch of partiers, right? That wasn't their thing. And so for them, Christmas was just kind of this holiday they wanted to stamp down. And actually, if you look at like Plymouth, which, you know, when the, probably the earliest Plymouth, uh, Puritan colony in North America, like their second year in Plymouth, people in Plymouth started to celebrate Christmas. And the governor went out and said, no, like, stop it. You can't celebrate Christmas. No, get back to work, everybody. Like no Christmas in Plymouth. Like It's not allowed here. Um, and so that mentality stayed in New England till like the mid 19th, yeah, mid 19th century. So like 1850s or so, that's when Christmas started to be celebrated here. Before then, there was like there was no Christmas; it was just not allowed. Um, so, so it's interesting to just think that Christmas at the time had these negative kind of almost spooky connotations for people. Yeah, most definitely was. I think it was like what the the Christmas Carol movie it shows the the dark periods of that time. And stuff like yeah. that, and it tells the ghost stories from long time ago, and, yeah. and I'm kind of glad that we kind of live in this century that it's mostly celebrated with joy and happiness and giving and stuff like that. Yeah, but you're right about like the ghost stories because you see that in a Christmas Carol. I think um, there's that Christmas song, uh, you know, the most wonderful time of the year. But there's yeah. like. You know, we'll tell scary ghost stories and tales of the glory of Christmases long, long ago. And most people now are like, well, we don't tell scary ghost stories at Christmas. 
but they wouldn't have passed. And I think in England, they still might tell ghost stories at Christmas more than we do. But it makes sense. Like, it's the darkest time of the year. You know, everything is kind of dead and cold. So you can almost see, like, you know, we celebrate more of the spooky death imagery at Halloween. But you can see how that could spread into other seasons, right? Like, it's still dark, cold, and dead for a long time. So the spookiness might last for a while, I guess. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Well, well, Peter, I would really like to say thank you so much for coming on Ghost Travelers Podcast today. Uh, for somebody who would like to purchase uh, your book and learn a little bit about you and read your blog, uh, can you tell us where people can find your your info? Sure. So my books, you can buy any place online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Bookshop, Books A Million, any place like that. Um so it's Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts is my newest book. And then my other book is Legends and Lore of the North Shore. And you can also find me uh, through my blog. It's just called New England Folklore. And you can find it at newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. And with the links that you just mentioned, I'll put it in the bottom of the description of this uh, video podcast and audio podcast for people can find it a lot easier for them to look you up and maybe say hi and have a ghost story for you that'd be great yeah i would love that i love to hear people's stories i'm always excited to learn a new legend which is great yeah same here well peter again i don't want to hold much of your time Uh, i would like to say thank you for coming on my uh podcast tonight um i would like to wish you and your husband a merry christmas if we don't uh talk in a before christmas Well, everyone, I'd like to say thank you for your time being here. Take care and travel safe. I would like to say thank you to Peter for coming on Ghost Travelers Podcast today. If you would like to know more about Peter and read his blog, please head over to his website at newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. If you like this episode of Ghost Travelers Podcast, please consider on hitting that subscribe button for you don't miss a new episode. Thank you for your time with us, and this is your host, PJ, from Ghost Travelers Podcast. Take care and travel safe.